want you to transport yourself back to college, to a college classroom. You're sitting in a biology class. The professor starts to lecture on evolution. You think to yourself, oh, oh great, another day. As the lecture progresses, the professor starts to ridicule people who believe in intelligent design. He's really going at it. You feel yourself start to get a little bit nervous. You wonder you know, if he might call you out in front of everyone. Pretty soon he starts poking fun at those dumb, backwards Christians who still believe in a literal six-day creation. Then the professor asks in a cocky manner, as if he wants to pick a fight, if there are any Christians in his classroom who actually believe such a thing. And now you start to sweat. You think to yourself, well, no one really knows here that I'm a Christian, so I, can, I don't have to raise my hand and know it's not going to hurt my testimony. But as you sit there in silence contemplating what to do, across the room a hand goes up. A girl raises her hand in defiance against the teacher. So the professor ridicules her for believing in such nonsense, quotes some data, tries to make her look like a fool. The class gets in on it, starts to chime in about how ignorant she is. All the while she just sits there calm and collected. At this point, what would you do? Would you raise your hand in solidarity with uh, the lone Christian and suffer some persecution from the professor for what you believe, or would you continue to hang back in silence? What if you really were the only Christian in that room? Would you have raised your hand then? What if the whole class was against you? What would it take for you to not raise your hand? Verbal persecution, mockery, ridicule. What about physical persecution? Violent treatment, imprisonment, death. Believe it or not, this is important for you to think about because as Christians, persecution comes with the territory of following Christ. Even in America, lesser persecutions like mockery and ridicule still prevail. And knowing what we know about history and depravity, it wouldn't take much for things to get worse. In one form or another, to one degree or another, followers of Christ will not escape persecution. Something Christ himself promised to those who were going to follow him. For example, John 15:18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And we know these words are still true today. Jesus was merely preparing his disciples for the cost of discipleship. And you need to count the cost of following Christ, knowing he calls you to be light in a world of darkness. That often spells trouble for the light because the darkness hates the light. Some try in vain to escape that persecution, but that only works if you're willing to blend into the darkness. But if you're really going to follow Christ and live as that light, it will come. That being said, we still have great joy because we have Christ, and gaining him far outweighs the loss of everything else. And we also have great comfort because we know that God is sovereign, even over persecution. Though you might be suffering God is still in control. And though you may not see how, know that he's working out your sufferings for his glory and and for your greater good. This biblical perspective on persecution and the right response is so essential to possess, especially as our world gets darker, that we want to continue to build up this perspective this morning. Last week, we technically began a, a study, a new study through a new book of the Bible, Philippians, And we did so by going to Acts 16, which at first sounds a little bit strange until you realize that Acts 16 records the founding of the Philippian church. 
And so we find there some invaluable information for helping us get to know the Philippian church even before we get to Paul's letter to them. So starting last week, we aim to make our way through Acts 16, pointing out some important background information as it pertains to Philippians. And we're going to continue to do that today, to continue to prepare ourselves for Philippians. But as you know, if you were here last week, we've been pulling some double duty. And pointing out Philippians' background is, is nice and all, but that's not totally faithful to the text of Acts 16 itself. There's still a great word just on its own here from, from the Lord. This is a special passage of scripture. And so at the same time, we've also been just studying through Acts 16 in its own right, hearing and discerning God's word for us today. And that we want to continue as well. In this regard, specifically from Acts 16, we find three pictures of God's sovereignty that you can learn to trust him in your own life. The theme of God's sovereignty really rises to the surface in this chapter, and it comforts us like a lighthouse in a, in a dark time. God's sovereignty picturesquely plays out in Paul's life in many ways, each of which speaks to our own lives. And last time we looked at the first two of these pictures, God's sovereignty in direction and God's sovereignty in salvation. Today we come back and we resume with number three, God's sovereignty in persecution. So if you haven't already, open your Bible to Acts 16. And so we're going to continue this double duty study, partly going through Acts 16, pointing out some background to Philippians when appropriate. But for the most part, just taking Acts 16 for what it's worth and learning how God sovereignly worked to begin this Philippian church and what that means for us today as well. So let's continue on. Technically, this is number three, God's sovereignty in persecution. The third picture of God's sovereignty takes up the lion's share of Acts 16, so we'll read as we go. A lot of verses to cover, so let's, let's split up this inspired illustration of God's sovereignty in persecution into four parts. The circumstances, the response, the purpose, and the deliverance. And you'll see as we go. Starting with number one, the circumstances. So far in Acts 16, we've seen Paul, or rather God, direct Paul's steps to Philippi. He opens the heart of Lydia, bringing her to salvation. And so the Philippian church was born, which would later meet at Lydia's house. Now as we pick things back up, it's after Lydia's salvation. Some time has passed. Paul and his companions, they aim to return to that same place of prayer, perhaps to evangelize the other women there. But they never make it. Something happens on their way. So let's pick things back up now in verse 16. Which says that it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. It's actually quite a bit going on in these few verses, more than we have time to deal with right now. But suffice it to say, this is the spark that will ignite a forest fire of persecution for Paul. These circumstances might sound bizarre today, but back then, not so much. This little girl was functioning as an oracle 
which you might be familiar with if you know your Greek history and, and mythology. These were people who were thought to have some access to the mind of the gods, the plans of the gods. And so people would pay money to consult the oracle and learn about their potential future. And here we learn, as was probably often the case, this oracle girl was actually demon-possessed. Her, her power, whatever it was, came from a demon. But when the demon residing in this girl saw Paul, much as happened with Christ, he couldn't help but confess his apostolic authority and the truth that happened to Jesus all the time. Because we know God is sovereign, Satan and demons are not. It's also evident Paul didn't want this demon-possessed girl to be his spokesman around town. Much like Jesus constantly wanted to silence the demons. So Paul cast this demon out of the girl. And as with every instance of demon possession in scripture, she is immediately and totally transformed and delivered. Even her masters know she's instantly different. And they can tell at the same time their hope of profit is gone because she's lost whatever power she had. And so in response to this, they lash out at Paul. Verse 19. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. As you can see, things are starting to heat up for Paul. You would think that these men would rejoice that this little girl was finally delivered from this affliction. But no, all they care about is their hope of profit. And they see that vanish. As they can tell, Paul just did something and she's different. So they drag Paul and Silas to the marketplace. In the ancient world, the marketplace, that's your city center. You've got your, it's like your mall where you've got shops, you've got restaurants. You also have a courthouse. Legal proceedings would take place there. And so verse 20 says, And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs, which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. There's a lot going on in the white spaces of these two verses. First, notice how the slave girl's masters are lying about what Paul did. Their real complaint against Paul was that he ruined their golden goose. He, he cast the demon out of this girl. But is that what they bring up to the magistrates? No. They fabricate this lie, rather, that Paul was proclaiming customs which... The Romans cannot follow. Now, Paul may have been preaching, but that's not the real issue that was going on here at all. And even Romans were allowed to practice Jewish customs. There's clearly some anti-Semitism going on here. Because as we learned last week, Philippi was an extremely Roman city, very proud of the Roman heritage and citizenship. We also learned there's a minuscule population of Jews in Philippi, perhaps because they weren't welcome. And so it appears these slave owners are trying to incite the magistrates against Paul by pointing out these guys are Jews. They're up to no good. This may explain why they seize Paul and Silas, who were Jews, and not Luke and Timothy, who were Gentiles. Whatever the case, clearly this was an unjust accusation against Paul and Silas before the city authorities. Speaking of verse 20, references these chief magistrates. Every Roman colony was governed by two magistrates. They functioned like the local judges or authorities in the colony, governing all the matters and, and judging all the cases. But in this case, they weren't happy 
with what they heard. And so verse 22 says, The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off and then proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Here are the circumstances of Paul's persecution really ramp up. I mean, that took a turn. As happened to Christ, this was an illegal trial. This was an abuse of justice. The magistrates were doing wrong. There was no trial. There was no hearing. This was merely an abuse of justice as mob mentality took over, inflamed by hatred for the Jews. So the magistrates ordered Paul and Silas to be beaten with rods. Doesn't sound fun. Paul would have that happen to him three times in his career. After a sufficient beating, they were then thrown into prison like trash in a dumpster. And this would have been a pretty nasty place. Verse 23 says they were to be guarded securely. Verse 24 says they were to be taken into the inner prison. This is like the cell within a cell. This is the dank, damp inner dungeon where no light penetrates. Records tell us how the smell, the stench of waste and rot would have just suffocated you. Rats would scurry about as will, or at will rather. This was no Holiday Inn Express. This was no hotel. And to make matters worse, Paul and Silas had their feet fastened in stocks, stretching them apart. I mean, can you tell? They really didn't want them going anywhere. They're locked inside of a cage, inside of another cage, in stocks. This is not what they had in mind for their second missionary trip. And if this were you, what would you be thinking at that point? Like, God, what what are you doing? Why did you bring us here? You brought us 500 miles for this? And, And where are you? How can this be a part of your plan? If you're sovereign, how could you let this happen to us? But this is not the first time God sovereignly allowed, even directed, his servants to be persecuted, even unjustly imprisoned. We think again of Joseph, who in an act of righteousness in fleeing an adulterous woman was nonetheless falsely accused and imprisoned. Yet God was all behind that, directing his steps right where he wanted him according to his greater plan, which we know from Genesis. Same happened to Jesus Right? I mean, was he not falsely accused, arrested, tried, beaten, imprisoned, and then executed? And for what? What crime did he commit? That he was perfectly righteous. He did nothing wrong. The only thing he did was to convict others of their sin and guilt. Yet for that reason, they hated him. And for the same reason, those in the world will always hate those who truly follow Christ. Always. This is why Jesus promised suffering and persecution for those who follow him. John 3. You all know 3.16. What about what follows, like 3.19? He says, this is the judgment, that the light, Christ, has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Those who live in the world, they live in darkness and they hate the light. They hate Christ. And what do you think they're going to 
feel towards those who likewise live in that light, who walk in the light. They're going to hate you too, just as they hated Jesus. And so it goes in a fallen, evil world where bad is good, black is white. But God is still in sovereign control, even over the unjust sufferings of his people. Again, look no further than Christ. His sufferings were most definitely part of God's predetermined plan. So if even Jesus was not above suffering, and even if his sufferings were according to the will of God, what makes you think yours are any different? Are your circumstances so bad you think they're outside of God's reach? He can't do anything? No, rather God is just as sovereign over your sufferings, your persecutions as Christ's, as Paul's. And you must rest in God's perfect wisdom and goodness, knowing he's working it all out for a greater good. You're not always going to be able to avoid such persecutions. What matters most is that you rest in a trust of God and rightly respond. And let's learn about that response now. How did Paul respond? Number two, the response. Number one, the circumstances. Secondly, now, the response. How did Paul and Silas respond to their treatment? One verse, verse 25. It says, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. This short verse tells you all you need to know about the right response to suffering and persecution. How did they respond? By praying and praising their God. And you probably don't need me to tell you this is the right response. What's the typical response to persecution? To worry and complain. To worry and complain. I mean, if this were you, think about all that you would be worrying about. You know, what, what, what would they do to us next? Are we ever getting out of here? Are they going to beat us again? What, what's going to happen to us? And think about how you might complain. You know, my feet hurt so much in these stocks. The smell is unbearable. I can't believe we ended up here. We didn't even do anything wrong. This is so unfair. God, how could you do this to us? How could you let this happen to us? I mean, don't you want us out there preaching the gospel and not rotting in this prison? You've, you've not been in these circumstances. But I bet you've had some of these worries and some of these complaints in response to your own afflictions in life. And I think we all have. But again, this wasn't Paul's response that time. Instead of worrying, instead of complaining, they simply prayed to and praised their God. How? How are they able to do that? How were they able to have such peace in the midst of that? That's not a normal response, but Paul and Silas, they knew something that those in the world don't know, namely that God, he's, he's still sovereign even over your persecution. He, he's still in the driver's seat. That doesn't mean their imprisonment was good. It's not. Their imprisonment was not good. Their treatment was evil. But they knew God even uses evil at times to further his perfect purposes. And resting in that knowledge, firm in that truth, they responded the only way. You pray for relief, for comfort, for deliverance, and you praise God for his faithfulness, for his goodness. And they knew their sufferings didn't change the goodness of God. I mean, do you believe that? 
your sufferings don't change the goodness of God. The natural response to sufferings is to doubt that God is good because you reason, I mean, if God is good, how could he let bad things happen to his children? He must not be good. And that would be true unless God has some greater purpose for allowing the evil to befall you. Paul and Silas, though, they knew well that God, being all-powerful and all-wise, he has such a greater purpose. And so resting in that, they simply prayed and praised. Again, if you don't believe me, just think about Christ. He was not above suffering and persecution. It was entirely God's will, and he exhibited the right response. And we're called to follow his lead explicitly. A familiar passage, but I'll read again, 1 Peter chapter 2, 19-23. Where Peter says, For this finds favor if, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if you, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right, and you suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And then he says this, verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And what was his example? Verse 22, Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus suffered unjustly, but he trusted God. He knew it was part of a, a greater plan, and he, he rightly responded. We are light, called to be light, not darkness. So even as the darkness hates us and persecutes us, we, we can't fight fire with fire. We can't fight darkness with darkness. We can't revile in return like Christ did not revile in return. But that doesn't mean we are to worry or complain. Rather, like Christ, simply entrust yourself to God who judges righteously. He will right all wrongs in the end. You are called to trust him. And in that trust, you express that with prayer and praise. It's what you're called to do. This lesson on dealing with adversity in response to our persecution, it's one we've learned before and we're going to learn it again, especially when we get to Philippians. Speaking of some Philippians background, keep in mind, from where did Paul write Philippians? From jail. He was in jail again. Not this time. He gets out. But later he winds up in prison in Rome. And yet he writes this letter of Philippians from jail. You know the theme of Philippians? It's joy and rejoicing. And he tells them things like this. Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or complaining, so that you will prove yourselves to be innocent and blameless children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. That sounds like it's written for today, and it is. He also tells them Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then you know verses 6 and 7, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. 
mean, that's prayer, that's praise, it's not complaining, it's not worrying, it's, it's the right response. And he wrote all that from another jail cell. Paul was still having a hard time when he wrote Philippians. Many in the Philippian church were having a very difficult time as well. That he calls them and us to nevertheless rejoice sometimes. No, he said rejoice always. Rejoice always in the Lord. He doesn't tell them to rejoice in their evil circumstances, their difficult circumstances. He tells them to rejoice in the God of their difficult circumstances. For God is sovereign even over persecution. And when you do this, when you peacefully respond to persecution with prayer and praise, the world will take notice. They're not going to help it at times. That's what happened to Paul back in verse 25. It says that while Paul and Silas prayed and praised, the other prisoners were, what? Listening to them. Now, they were a captive audience. They didn't really have a choice. But the emphasis is that they were listening intently. I mean, they had never seen anyone get beaten jailed, and then placed in stocks only to then praise their God. That usually causes people to curse their God. But here these guys were and just worship. How can that be? Yet in their right response, God's purpose starts to show. Let's talk about that. Number three, the purpose. The purpose. When you suffer, it's hard to handle because it appears purposeless. But to a sovereign God, nothing is purposeless. It's just that you can't see the purpose yet, and you may never see the exact purpose in this life. But you're called to learn to trust a sovereign God who's working all things out to his perfect will. Learn that from people like Paul. Why do you think this is recorded in Scripture? And after all Paul went through, how do you think God is going to work this out? How do you think he's going to bring about a greater purpose in the midst of their sufferings. Well, let's find out. Verse 26. It says, And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. Paul and Silas were beaten, fastened in stocks, locked in a deep dungeon. By their own power, they weren't going anywhere. But can you think of a prison that can hold those whom God wants released? And if he wants them out, they're they're getting out. It doesn't matter how. He'll find a way. He'll do it. This is God's power. He sends an earthquake, shakes the foundation of the prison house. All the doors fling open. All the stocks just bust off. And everyone is, is free. And for God, that's nothing. That's just a taste of his power. That really is nothing before him. But realize that. I mean, think about this. This means that for God, our sufferings, it's not an issue of his power, it's an issue of his will. Meaning, look, does he have the power to deliver us from all our sufferings? Of course. He, he proves his power here, delivering Paul and Silas from their, from their affliction. But you realize that if that's true, you have to accept the fact that God willed, in some way, for Paul and Silas to be beaten and to be imprisoned in the first place. Because after all, if God has the power to deliver his people from such harms, why didn't he stop it in the first place? I mean, he could have. Why not send the earthquake before they get beaten up and they can just run away? Why not deliver them before any of this happens to them? 
He's got the power. By him not doing it, he's just as responsible as if he had caused it to happen. He has the power to stop it, and he doesn't. Why wouldn't God intervene to deliver them before they were persecuted? The answer is because God didn't want to. It's an issue not of his power, but of his will. Why didn't he want to? Because as always, he has some other greater purpose he is trying to accomplish, even through their unjust suffering. And now we're finally introduced to that purpose. What is it? It's the jailer. The jailer is the purpose. Verse 27. It says, When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Possibly there is a a little housing unit attached to the prison where the jailer lived, or there could have been sleeping quarters somewhere inside as well. Either way, he was awakened by the earthquake. He recognized the potential for the prisoners to escape. So he rushed over, only to have his worst fears confirmed. The earthquake had popped open all the doors. Surely he thought the prisoners had escaped. It's pitch black down there. He can see the doors open. He can't see anyone inside. He reasons that they're gone. And so he's preparing to to kill himself. Because as a Roman guard, failing in this post, it's certain death anyway. He would have been executed. But much to his surprise, not only was Paul still there, all the prisoners were still there. Now, why do you think Paul and Silas didn't escape? I mean, they're praising God, they're praying to him, and as they're doing so, it says, this earthquake comes, pops open the door, pops off their stocks, they're totally free to go. Wouldn't you take that as like a divine sign to run run away, like run while you can? However, they knew that by running, they would be marked as Roman fugitives, and that would do nothing but tarnish the reputation of the gospel and the early church. So they just sat there. Trusting that if God wanted them out, he'd get them out fair and square. But what makes this even more shocking is that none of the other prisoners ran away either. I mean, why is that? Maybe you could say they too didn't want to be marked as fugitives, but what seems more likely here is they were mesmerized by Paul and Silas's response to all of their sufferings, their prayer, their praise, And they recognized this earthquake was supernatural. This came because of those two guys. Out of fear, out of shock. They see Paul and Silas. They're not going anywhere, so they're not going to go anywhere either. They're just going to wait and see what what happens next. Already, what a testimony Paul and Silas have before these others. Speaking of, look at verse 29. It says of the jailer, He called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Isn't that something? How did the jailer know to bow down before Paul and Silas and not one of the others? It's obvious. He knew from the moment these guys were brought there, they were different. They're praying, they're praising. They're different. Their God is different. And it was immediately apparent their God just showed up and proved himself true. But it goes even deeper. 
For the jailer asks that all-important question, the most important question, what must I do to be saved? Why did he ask that? He was full of fear and trembling. Why? Only, only one reason. This is the response of someone living in the darkness who suddenly thrust into the light. Now that the lights have been turned on, both in that dungeon and in the jailer's heart, all of his sins lay bare and exposed. Seeing the light of Paul and Silas's righteousness, even in the face of their suffering, was such a stark contrast to the darkness in his own heart. God was right there convicting him of his sin, which obviously makes immediately apparent the need for a savior. For some people, it takes an earthquake or the threat of death to finally break them, show them their sin, show them their need for a savior. And this jailer, he already knew that Paul and Silas and their God had the answer. And indeed they did. They told him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, of course, it's merely a summary as they needed to know more. And so verse 32 says, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. Surely Paul went on to explain more of who Jesus was. God the Son, the Son of God, the Son of Man, God himself in human flesh, the sinless one, the sacrificial lamb. And they explained what Jesus came to do. Why did God take on human nature and come to earth? To live a perfect life and then to die on that cross in, in their place. Jesus willingly gave himself up to die on the cross, bearing the full wrath of God for your sins. And Christ on the cross made that payment in full. He died, he was buried, but in victory over sin and death. He rose on the third day, proving he holds the keys of life and death in his hands. And now Jesus stands offering this life, new life, eternal life to all who will believe in him. Which is to say, all who will give him their lives, submit their entire life to him as Lord and Savior, counting him worth more than all else. And as you give him your life, so new life comes to you. And I urge you today, anyone here today who has not submitted your entire life to Christ, do so now. Today is that day of salvation. Turn, repent. And believe, it's the only answer to the darkness in this world, the darkness in your heart. See the light and be saved. That's what the jailer did along with his own household. As we read, Paul, or rather the jailer, brought Paul and Silas out of their cell. His whole household was with them, awakened by the earthquake. They all came to see what was happening. And so Paul preached to them all. They all believed. They all submitted their life to Christ. And so verse 33 says, And he took them, Paul, he took them at that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. Or rather, the jailer took them at that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. As the jailer and his household all respond in true faith, so they're all baptized as a witness of their newfound conversion. First, the jailer washed Paul of his wounds, then Paul washed the jailer, so to speak, of his spiritual wounds through baptism. Verse 34 says, And he brought them into his house, 
and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. This really is one of the greatest transformations in scripture. Just hours before, this jailer was living in darkness, ready to kill himself. But then the light of Christ shone on him, and he he found God. He submitted himself to Christ, and he was saved. And now his life is filled with joy and rejoicing. What a turnaround. But you know what? Humanly speaking, this turnaround never would have happened unless what? And thus Paul and Silas were persecuted, unjustly beaten, imprisoned, jailed, and placed there. If they were never put in those circumstances, humanly speaking, this never would have happened. Perhaps now you can see part of God's purpose behind it all. This, this is it. This is part of it. God was, on the one hand, doing a work in the lives of Paul and Silas on their own, and at the same time, using them and the right response to draw this jailer to himself. And I bet that greater joy took all the sting off of Paul's wounds. It's it's worth it when you realize that. When you see God's purpose finally revealed, you realize that he knows what he's doing and it's all worth it. And we don't always understand God's behind-the-scenes purposes to every event and affliction in our lives. We don't get a chapter of the Bible explaining why we, we are persecuted. We don't get our own chapter explaining that. But we do get a promise. It's a promise made by a sovereign God. A promise only a sovereign God can keep. And you know it. Romans 8, 28. It says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purposes. Not all things are good. Some things are bad. Getting beaten up wrongly and thrown in prison, that's bad. But we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. God has a plan. He has a purpose. He's working that out. And even if you can't see the greater purpose, you have to believe he is working it out for your good. Again, look no further than Christ. There was God's own son, yet God ordained for him to be wrongly treated and killed. Why? Why would a loving God do this? Well, we know to save millions. That's why. And when you finally learn this lesson from accounts like this in Scripture, Hopefully you learn that ultimate response too, which is just just to trust him. Live trusting God. God's in control. He has a perfect plan and purpose. He's working that out. You just trust him while doing what is right and know that God will always deliver his people. In fact, let's finish with this. Number four, the deliverance. Number four, the deliverance. Verse 35. It says, now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Now, this is, this is crazy when you think about it. Maybe the most remarkable thing. After all that happened, 
Do you know how much Paul and Silas trusted God? So much so that after all the earthquake, all this stuff, after converting the the jailer, baptizing him and his household, after all that, they willingly returned to their jail cell that night. Right? That's where they are again. They're back in their jail cell. That is someone who really trusts God's sovereignty. If he wants them out, he's going to do it fair and square for the sake of the reputation of the gospel. This earthquake was almost surely a supernatural localized event. The magistrates never knew about it. But now they send their henchmen to release Paul and Silas. Their hope was that, you know, let's rough these guys up, give them a night in jail, and they'll just leave town. That's what they wanted. But that's not going to work out that way. Verse 37. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now they're sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. Not so fast, Paul says. He knows his trial, his beating, their imprisonment, all against the law, against Roman law, totally unjust for someone who was a Roman citizen, and Paul was. This is a serious violation of Roman law. This would mean serious consequences for these two magistrates. So Paul says, no, 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 I don't think so. They're going to have to come here themselves. I'm not going to let them sweep this under the rug. He demands they come to the prison in person, something which they would never ordinarily do. Verse 38 says, The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And I heard, you see, the tables have totally turned. Magistrates were rightly afraid when they heard that Paul was a Roman. So they, they go, they go in, in person to the prison. They take him out, and now they're begging them to just, just leave. Don't, don't cause trouble, just leave the city. What a turn of events. Paul and Silas, they're, they're going to leave. They're not going to stir up trouble. But they're going to do so on their own terms. So first, they visit Lydia and the little Philippian church one last time. And just see how remarkably this whole thing ends. Verse 40. It says, They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Did you get that? Paul and Silas, these are the guys, they were just beaten up, imprisoned, Yet they make one last stop and they're doing the encouraging. They're encouraging the church. They are lifting their spirits. Like, what, what is up with that? How is that possible? That's only possible if you have men who truly just live in God's hands, trusting a sovereign God to work it all out. The Philippian church would later return the favor to Paul, by the way. And encourage Paul. See, later Paul would wind up in prison again in Rome. That's from where he wrote Philippians. And the reason, the real reason actually he's writing the letter of Philippians, which we'll get to next week, it's actually a thank you letter. He's thanking them for giving him a gift. They had, they knew he was in prison and they were of the few who actually remembered Paul. And so they deliver him a gracious love gift just to comfort him in prison through Epaphroditus. And so Paul writes to thank them. Philippians doesn't say, doesn't mention the jailer, but I just wonder, was the jailer still around? Was he the one who organized this love offering to Paul? We'd like to think so. Either way, the city that so harshly treated Paul 
and imprisoned him. That church now gives him a gift and encouragement. And Paul rejoiced over such gifts and over such deliverance. He says over in 2 Timothy 3.11, he's speaking of his persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. God delivered Paul from his persecutions, and he will deliver likewise all of his people. But wait, you may think, well, okay, that's true, but at the same time, wasn't Paul ultimately not delivered? From like that final persecution? I mean, wasn't he wasn't he killed? Wasn't he beheaded? And are weren't countless other Christians not delivered from their persecution? So, I mean, how can you say God will always deliver his people from their sufferings? But that is precisely what God was doing. That is the final deliverance, the greatest deliverance there is. And if you if you don't buy that, if you don't get that, just wait till we get to Philippians 1 21 where Paul famously says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It doesn't make any sense to the world. How can death be gain? Death represents the loss of all your treasure. But for those in Christ, death represents the gain of our treasure, namely Christ himself. And so Paul takes encouragement in the fact that God will ultimately deliver him and all his people from sin and suffering. And so he says also in 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul said that during his second Roman imprisonment and he knew he was going to die. He knew that was it. But God was going to rescue him. Not in this life, but he's going to safely deliver him to the kingdom. Although deliverance from your persecutions may not come in this life, just keep entrusting yourself to a God who judges faithfully. Especially as Christ followers, it's going to happen, one form or another, to one degree or another, bad things will happen to you. But know that God is still in control. And though you can't all see it, just learn from Scripture that he has a greater purpose and he's working out all things according to that purpose. That always includes his glory, your Christ-likeness. So just rest in this knowledge. Trust in his sovereign plan. Do what is right and endure. You just, you just press on. You fight on. You finish the race of faith like we sang this morning by faith. Trusting God will carry you through to the end. We'll close with what Peter said to Christians as they likewise were suffering even unto death. And so he says in 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered for a little while, and he meant their whole lives. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let's press on until that day. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we are grateful for this word. Some would call it a mere story, but for us we know it's so much more in the book of Acts, this, this record of, of your servant Paul and Silas and how they suffered so much for, for the sake of righteousness. Yet, Lord, we see how your sovereign hand was guiding and directing their steps. And although evil befell them, you used it for such an amazing purpose, both 
sanctifying them and also drawing this, this jailer and his whole household to yourself. And through that, Lord, you laid the foundation. You planted the seeds of, of a whole church, a flipping church. God, we, we have to trust you. We, we don't always see the exact connections of why this happens, why that happens, but we know we have to just rest in the knowledge. You, you're good. You're good. You're powerful. You're in control. You're wise. And your purposes are good, Lord. We know ultimately all things lead to your glory, and we confess that is worthy. You, you are worth all else. And your son Christ, he's the pearl of great price, worth everything, worth losing everything to gain. And so we just want to rest in the knowledge for those here who are in Christ. We already have everything, and we can lose nothing in Christ. So we delight in that, and we rejoice. Help us to press on any here who are suffering without complaining, without worry, but simply trusting in their Savior and enduring. And for any, Lord, who, who don't know Christ, convict them. Show them the light. They'll suffer too. Without any hope, though, Lord, show them the only hope of sin and suffering and death in this life, and that is, again, Christ himself. Draw them to yourself and give them the joy we have that the world cannot touch. Bless us as we depart, as we continue to strive by faith to serve you and to enjoy you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.